This panel was part of the SGPS Scholarship Beyond Boundaries Conference hosted at Queen's University from the 29th of February to the 1st of March, 2020. Okay, so <clears throat> welcome to this session. Uh, I think everybody knows who I am since I was just talking, but I'm more maybe. Um, I am the Director of Policy Studies, and this is a uh, policy-oriented session particularly at uh, drug policy and, and you know, policy re related to different uh, drugs that are out there. We have two speakers on our panel, and it's a relatively small group, so I think that we can be relatively informal about the way that we do things, but we do have two presentations. And I guess what I'm going to ask is that we do go through the two presentations first, and then we'll open it up for a general sort of a discussion. Uh, I'm happy to moderate questions, but you know, I think we can have a discussion as we go. So our first speaker will be Lindsay Lowe. Uh, Lindsay is coming uh, from psychology and she'll be talking about cannabis regulations. Uh, and then afterwards we'll have Ron Shore. And Ron is coming from kinesiology and health studies. And he will be talking about uh, psychedelic medicines. So two interesting talks. Good thing to talk about before lunch. Uh, different uh, approaches to drug policy, and so I'm very pleased to hand over to, to Lindsay, and we'll watch the presentations, then we'll, we'll jump into some talk. Thanks. Perfect, thanks. Uh, yeah, so I'm Lindsay, so yeah, I'm a master's student here at Queen's. Um, I also work as a cannabis counselor and researcher uh, for medical cannabis uh, based in a clinic based in Vancouver. Um, yeah, so the topic of drug policy in cannabis is like very vast. Like there's a lot of different areas that kind of it covers. So it, you know, it's, it's access to cannabis, it's production of cannabis, it's the economics behind it, um, you know, the law and criminal justice behind it, uh, public health, medicine. So yeah, uh, cannabis drug policy is, is a very, very vast topic. Um, I'm mostly gonna be talking about drug policy today um, with respect kind of more to a healthcare medical perspective. Um, and kind of like looking at kind of some gaps of, of what we uh, know and kind of how we haven't always had evidence informed policy. Um, and then kind of talking about kind of the future and um, kind of therapeutic potential and uh, considerations moving forward. Um, so just really quickly, I'm just gonna kind of touch on the road to legalization. So um, the process of legalizing cannabis has been a very long process actually. So um, it was first you know, introduced in 2001, um, which was the um, uh, Marijuana Medical Access Regulation Act. Um, and that they needed um, a government license and uh, to be signed off by a physician um, and they could possess you know, dry flower or bud. Um, and so this is, you know, kind of the big first breakthrough that Canada had for getting some access, at least, uh, to cannabis, but again, only uh, medical patients, um, and it was uh, quite hard to get. Uh, and then 2014, so a big gap between that, um, they changed it slightly, and they had it so you no longer needed a government license, but you still needed a physician to uh, sign off. Uh, and then kind of when the Liberals came into power, uh, they wanted to legalize it. Um, 
survey sent out to the public uh, came back with about seven out of ten Canadians that responded to the survey were pro-legalization. Um, and then in uh, 2017, um, that's when uh, Bill C-45 was introduced, um, and it really was to legalize cannabis. So they had kind of a task force come in and look at how they were going to legalize it. Their kind of their main goals were, you know, to eliminate the black market, uh, increase Canada's economy, um, and then, you know, keep it out of the hands of, of youth and minors. Um, and so this, they, their kind of law with that was to allow, you know, recreational use, so not just medical. Um, and then, you, you know, you could possess up to 30 grams of cannabis. Um, so that was introduced in 2017, and then it actually came into effect October 17th, uh, 2018. Um, the bill underwent a couple of revisions, um, but yeah, then it was uh, finally legalized. Um, although not all forms of cannabis were legalized. So edibles, for example, just became uh, legalized actually really recently. Um, things like topicals, for example, are also uh, still actually not really on the market. Um, so it's been a slow, long, drawn-out process, to say the least. Yeah, that's one. So kind of where are we now? Um, you know, as I just mentioned, kind of the three main goals there were to get rid of the black market, boost the economy, and then keep it out of the hands of the youth. Um, so there was um, some issues to this success. Um, kind of their last mandate about keeping it out of the hands of the youth, that seems to be the most successful in terms of uh, so far, data is showing that um, there hasn't been a significant increase in, um, you know, minors using cannabis compared to what it was pre-legalization. Um, but again, uh, cannabis in general, there's a lack of research and evidence, so we know that's kind of still, um, you know, morphing in and kind of progressing as we go. Uh, however, there were some kind of major issues um, that some people would even probably deem failures, actually. Um, for the rollout of legalization. Um, so to eliminate the black market and boosting Canada's uh, economy, um, there were some major issues there. So um, kind of the policies that were put in place to ensure production and distribution, um, you know, had some flaws and then there was a huge delay in rollout of stores. Um, you know, BC opened with one store, Ontario opened with one store. Ontario still has, you know, the least amount of, of stores, um, and it has the most amount of people. Um, so, uh, and then also supply shortages as well, uh, you know, constantly running out. Um, issues with quality as well, uh, like there were some issues with molding and, and contaminants, even though uh, legal, the whole, a huge part of legalization too also was for the safety of the product, right? So it was, it's highly regulated, it's tested for contaminants and toxins, and you could see how that would also kind of in a way create even more distrust in the public because they are thinking they're getting this nice clean supply and they open up their package and it's moldy. Um, so there was lots of issues with that, and, and due to that, um, there was really a, a not as high of a return in profits and stocks, and stocks right now are actually pretty low for cannabis companies. Um, and, you know, cost as well. So the whole, one of the big, big driving points, especially for the Liberals with getting it legalized, was that we're going to eliminate the black market. You know, we're taking billions of dollars out of the, you know, illicit drug trade per year by legalizing it. But uh, buying legal cannabis uh, in some places can be almost double uh, versus what it is for, you know, a black market. So, you know, a gram may cost like five fifty if you're buying, you know, illegally versus, you know, some um, strains can be like up to $13, $14 a gram. 
Um, so for a lot of people, um, why would you switch, right? Like if you're getting your cannabis for half the price, especially for medical patients too. Um, in the clinic I work at, we see a lot of low income patients and uh, it's just so expensive. And if it comes down to people either getting the medicine that works for them and that's really made a drastic difference in their life um, versus um, you know not and, and trying to go the legal and not getting the legal route and not getting the amount that they need, you know, I think the, the choice there for them is pretty obvious. Um, and I think it's, you know, something between usually 40 to 60% of medical users have actually had to uh, go to the illegal market for at least part of their supply because uh, legal uh, cannabis is so expensive. Um, so there was kind of some major flaws in, in the policy and the research that went into that. And, and, and yes, it should be, you know, noted that, you know, can, um, Canada, you know, really is a, a forerunner in this legalization process, right? Uh, you know, like Uruguay did it before us, and, you know, Portugal has decriminalized drugs. But, you know, there's not that many templates to work off of, so that is something to consider. But um, I think this whole idea of evidence-informed policy is something that really was missed, and not just evidence from, you know, a medical standpoint, you know, what are our randomized control trials showing, but, you know, from, like, an economic standpoint, too, and looking at the markets and looking at, um, you know, research into, you know, most effective ways to distribute and, and um, to have public access it, I think there could have been um, a lot more done uh, there in that sense. So there was also some major issues with actually how they rolled it out as well. Um, so if we look at the evidence we do have, the policy actually doesn't make as much sense, you know, if we really are trying to go off of, you know, what is the best for the public. So smoking cannabis is by far the most popular choice. Uh, you know, you go into dispensaries and it's, you know, you have a ton of dried product to choose from. Um, you know, there's bongs, pipes, lots of things like that. Um, you know, kind of just generally in the public too, it's, it's you know, talking a lot about using dried product and smoking it. Um, but smoking cannabis actually leaves uh, up to 30% more tar in your respiratory tract than tobacco does. Um, so, from that standpoint, you know, we're, we're so anti-smoking tobacco, um, but it's like the same stance wasn't taken for cannabis, and there was a lot of other things that, you know, we could have pushed and, and done to try and, one, educate the public on that, because most people don't know that, you know, it, it is, does leave a lot more tar, and it is, um, although there hasn't been as much evidence linking it to, uh, to cancer, there has been a ton of evidence linking it to lung disease. Um, so, things like uh, edibles just became available. Um, and, you know, edibles present their own issues with making sure, you, you know, you have proper dosing and, and they're a little bit more tricky to make. But, if, you know, if we are looking at it from, like, a harm reduction health standpoint, um, you know, doing the ingested tr um, way of consumption versus a uh, inhalation way, um, you know, is a lot more healthy. Um, and the other thing is uh, pushing dried product vaporization. Um, so not uh, oil product uh, vaporization. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff, you know, uh, health issues right now with that, especially with illicit products. Um, but dried product vaporization is completely different. It's just uh, your dried product and it just, you put it in a vaporizer and it heats it up rather than burning it, which is what smoking would do. Um, and that eliminates, um, you know, that tar that gets left behind um, and those toxins as well. Um, and, you know, that also wasn't really pushed or educated on as much either. Uh, and then also, um, legal CBD. So CBD is a huge, huge harm reduction tool actually for cannabis use. 
So CBD um, can help mitigate any impairing or unwanted you know, side effects from THC. Um, so CBD is not impairing, um, you know, meaning you don't get high from it, uh, while as THC is. And if you go into you know, really any of the local uh, stores even here in Kingston and you look at what products they have, it's all pretty much all high THC, you know, 15 to 24% THC and like usually 0% or close to CBD. And then we'll have a couple strains that are a high CBD. Um, and if we really want to, you know, again, mitigate risk to the public and people who are using it or who now have access to it, you know, making sure we have, you know, um, lots of products available that have CBD in it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of another area with the actual products that were rolled out and things that were available um, where it didn't actually really follow what the evidence was. And then so what about research? You know, most people figured, well, now that it's legal, you know, we're going to have a ton of research in it and, you know, Canada should be, the, you know, the forefront of cannabis research. Um, and it hasn't been that way at all, actually. So, unfortunately, Health Canada's regulations uh, and policies um, are very extensive, and, and it is good, but they haven't found an efficient way to uh, work through all of that, and there's a huge backlog in applications. So, um, it's like we've legalized something, but that we don't have enough evidence and data to actually inform those policies because we're not, you know, funding and getting that research going that we, we desperately need. Um, so, you know, some people are waiting like a year to two years almost to get their applications even reviewed. Um, so it's, it's a huge issue. Um, and then also funding, you know, they haven't, you know, allocated enough funding to it. And if you're just legalizing a new drug, you know, you'd think that you'd have a large chunk of money to go and investigate it, right, and be able to make evidence-informed policies for it. And again, that just wasn't really followed through on. Um, so there's kind of some, like, major areas that um, have really been impacted by this. You know, we do not have enough information on cannabis and driving. Um, age of consumption is a huge one. Um, there was a really big lack of evidence for how it affected youth and minors for a long time, and now uh, we actually are seeing um, more and more Emerging support saying that it absolutely does affect the brain's developmental trajectory. If you're using um, before 25, the earlier onset of use, kind of the more it impacts. Um, and, you know, when all of these policies were being made, you know, that evidence also wasn't necessarily considered. Um, and if we had just, you know, been able to put more money uh, into the research and be able to have a more efficient way to get through applications and kind of get more research going, um, you know, we kind of probably would have had this information, you know, a lot earlier. Um, other things like, you know, issues with workplace, so if people are in like a safety-sensitive occupation, um, you know, how cannabis use can impact them. Pregnancy is a huge one, um, you know, and we are seeing that there are kind of impacts with low birth weight, and, and you know, there is some association um, with um, adverse outcomes, but at the same time, if you have somebody who uh, is pregnant and, you know, has a chronic pain condition and they're on opioids, you know, what's better, you know, having some cannabis or having opioids? Like, this is things that we need to research, right? And we need to be able to make informed um, decisions on. Um, so, yeah, there's they're kind of, there's lots of uh, outcomes kind of and, and implications for this. And so, yeah, really what it comes down to is there's this kind of a lack of robust evidence, um, you know, to inform our policies. Um, and it really trickles down, though, to 
um, poor education, you know, of the public as well. Um, you know, both consumers, but also like healthcare professionals as well. Um, and you know, this really leads to a lot of widespread in, uh, misinformation, um, both for and against cannabis, actually. Um, so, you know, this is kind of a, some common claims that we hear all the time. Um, you know, it's addicted to heroin, um, you know, lowers your IQ by eight points. Um, like there's lots of kind of misinformation out there, um, you know, where the evidence actually isn't necessarily there to support it or it's incredibly varied. Um, and then same thing, you know, with um, policy as well. Like, you know, there was a lot of concerns around legalization and driving and things like that. And, um, we actually haven't seen, for example, like more, um, you know, DUIs or arrests for driving impaired. Actually, the data doesn't support that that's happened, and that was a huge, you know, concern, but that's still being, you know, propagated um, through a lot of channels of misinformation. And again, um, we absolutely need more research on it, um, but, you know, that's again with the whole backlog with the Health Canada and how uh, that's in impacted it. So, again, like kind of poor policies <laughs> in, in that sense. Now, most of the research or evidence available out there right now um, really involves using cannabis medically. Um, that's a large majority of it, and that's kind of my area and kind of what I'm going to focus on. Um, and it's interesting because a common criticism I hear most of the time, um, you know, from patients but also uh, healthcare providers as well, is that, oh, there's no evidence on it. There's no evidence backing that. Um, and while it is true we do need more evidence for sure, and it depends on condition, um, there is actually quite robust evidence for, for some conditions. Um, so all of those conditions up there, you see those all um, randomized controlled trial supported uses. So kind of the gold standard uh, in clinical trials. Um, so strong support for you know neuropathic pain, fibromyalgia, anxiety, um, dementia, you know PTSD. Um, so there's lots of things. Um, that um, it absolutely can be used for. And, and just kind of anecdotally in clinic, we do see, I would say, most of our patients are kind of like chronic pain or mental health patients. Um, and, you know, for most people, it has a dramatic impact on their life, right? Because these aren't people who um, have a bit of pain and they're coming in and wanting to use cannabis right away, right? Like, often these are people who have gone through like 10 different drugs, gabapentin, Lyrica morphine, hydromorphone, like really hard drugs on the body. They're on, you know, I've seen patients who are on up to 16 different, op like, you know, opioids and, and various painkillers and anti-inflammatories at a time, and they're just complete zombies. Um, and because cannabis um, can affect a lot of different uh, symptoms, um, when we add cannabis in, we can kind of decrease their other drug use. And, you know, I've, a lot of patients have described to me that they feel like they've gotten their life back. Um, and it's, it's quite dramatic, and of course, like any medication, it doesn't always work for everyone, um, but I would say vast majority of patients uh, in our clinic, at least. Um, and mind you, we are a referral-only clinic, so we are usually seeing cases that are a little bit more severe, more complex, have failed first, second, third, fourth-line treatments, um, but for them, it, it is a really life-changing thing. Um, so I always find it frustrating, I guess, when people want to ignore um, you know, something that does have you know, such a, a potential to help a lot of people. And so there really is a big missed opportunity, um, you know, in healthcare, 
Um, and there really kind of seems to be this distrust and, and lack of willingness to accept uh, cannabis has potential as a therapeutic um, and may actually be better than kind of our conventional pharmaceutical drugs for certain things. Um, so, you know, for example, like the opioid ep epidemic, you know, we've had, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people dying, you know. We don't hear about it as much in the news now, um, but, you know, the rates are still rising. It's still very, very much a problem um, that's not even close to being solved. Um, and cannabis can be a, a huge tool um, for that. Um, you know, there's lots of research with CBD, uh, with drug cravings and things like that. Um, you know, also for pain management as well, right, THC is really good for that. There's high evidence for that. Um, so, you know, this is a huge, you know, um, potential that we have that we have yet to really tap into. Um, and we're kind of slowly starting to see it. Uh, like Vancouver, for example, is really one of the epicenters in Canada for the opioid crisis. And there's, you know, slowly more and more kind of organizations actually going in and um, handing out free cannabis um, to try and help, you know, with that harm reduction there. Um, things like mental health, you know, we're also in the middle of a mental health crisis. Um, you know, of course, there are also risks with cannabis and mental health. A lot of it does come down to dosing. High THC dosing, you know, can often exacerbate uh, symptoms that are already there if, if somebody has a uh, predisposition for it. But when used correctly, and this is usually like a CBD dominant preparation, um, it can have a dramatic impact on people with anxiety, depression, PTSD, things like that. Um, and then complex disease. So, you know, people who have, you know, a variety of, you know, issues that they're working through. Um, because, again, cannabis is a very multimodal treatment, uh, it can be really, really useful for these patients because rather than having to be on 10 different medications doing 10 different things, you know, they can take, you know, one thing that does all of those things and then maybe, you know, a couple side things to supplement that. Um, but, yeah, you know, of course there are still risks, and I think that that is something that we have to be um, cognizant of and realistic with, you know. Um, but we need more data to make, you know, scientifically sound claims about this um, that will inform, you know, policies moving forward. You know, so again, like effect on youth and impairment driving, things like this, like we really need more sound data to, to be able to make conclusions on that. Um, and then the other uh, big, I would say, hole between implicating, you know, cannabis is, is the healthcare providers. Um, it's not really taught, it's slowly being introduced into med schools, but it, no, none of them really have a cannabis, you know, component yet. Uh, like UBC, for example, is kind of in the works of, of incorporating it in. Um, uh, this survey appears a little bit older, it's 2015, so it's pre-legalization, so I would expect it uh, to probably not be um, as drastic now, but 64% um, of responding physicians um, said that they felt that they needed cannabis education, and only 25% of them actually felt um, prepared to be able to authorize it, or which is basically prescribing it. Um, so, you know, that's not very much um, at all. So, you know, we need to also educate our healthcare providers as well and, and, and help them feel, you know, comfortable with being able to talk about this and, and for patients who um, may really benefit from it and be able to recognize uh, when those patients are in front of them. And so, you know, one thing I, I really did want to showcase, um, especially just because we are in such an opioid um, slash addiction in general epidemic in Canada, um, you know, we see it, it, it's incredibly prevalent in Kingston as well, um, is kind of these more recent findings of using cannabis for harm reduction. So, 
Uh, it was found to, you know, reduce the uh, amount of crack cocaine use. Um, it was, it's often used to, you know, substitute for prescription drugs, uh, such as opioids, but then also, you know, alcohol and other illicit substance. Um, and then for, you know, street-involved youth or, you know, youth experiencing homelessness, um, using cannabis is actually, um, you know, associated with uh, lower risks of initiation of, of drug use of, of harder drugs. So, you know, things like uh, heroin or cocaine. Um, so there's definitely potential there. We need definitely need more research still on it, um, but there's some really promising kind of preliminary findings. And so, yeah, so just to kind of... Uh, kind of touch back, like, what are, I guess, uh, the boundaries to why we're not utilizing, you know, cannabis more? Um, and, you know, there really is, like, an opposition to plant-based medicine. Um, and I think it's based on a lot of propaganda and kind of the whole war on drugs, reefer madness that hasn't really left. Um, it's improved, but we're still in a prohibition, you know, era. Um, and, you know, poor evidence. So not enough research. Um, being done, not enough funding, and poor science communication as well. So people, you know, misrepresenting facts. Um, and it goes for both sides. Um, you know, I see a lot of very pro-cannabis people also doing a disservice because they're, you know, cherry-picking and ignoring, you know, other data. Um, and it's important to talk about risks and, you know, contraindications for use. And then also the other way, though, you know, some people just refuse to believe that it has any benefit and will ignore any sort of evidence that kind of show that. Um, so it goes both sides. Um, most commonly, you know, what I do here is there's no evidence, um, and especially from the uh, kind of academic healthcare research community, um, it's this whole RCT-based evidence, so randomized controlled trials. And don't get me wrong, those are incredibly important, and of course, yes, the gold standard, but there's a lot of other uh, modalities of studying and, and giving meaningful data that don't, for some reason, seem to hold as much weight. So. Uh, retrospective and prospective cohort studies, case studies, systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Um, these should all also be considered and used as, you know, converging lines of evidence because randomized controlled trials are not perfect. Yes, they're a gold standard, but there's, you know, a major uh, weakness for them really is the ecological validity. So how much can we really generalize this to the population? Um, you know, they're done in such controlled environments with very specific populations. Um, and yes, that's important at the start, absolutely, but that often doesn't really translate actually to a lot of, um, you know, patients that are actually using it and what their real-world situations are. So to only be basing if something is valid off of, you know, their randomized controlled trials, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and, you know, this is where we really need, like, uh, interdisciplinary evidence and evidence from various modalities. Um, you know, this whole idea of kind of converging lines of evidence, we shouldn't be just be relying on kind of one thing. Um, then, you know, another big issue is that um, it doesn't have a drug identification number or a DIN number. So that's kind of what all pharmaceuticals have. It identifies the drug. Um, and because cannabis is a plant um, and, you know, they are you know, 400 different cannabinoids and hundreds and hundreds of different terpenes, uh, sometimes it's a little bit hard. And, you know, it, it seems like something small, whatever, it doesn't have a DIN, but it's actually a huge issue. Um, with, you know, poli drug policies, insurance is a big one. So for patients who are low income, who are just trying to get medicine that's making them feel better, it's a huge barrier because very few insurance uh, companies will cover it, again, because it doesn't have a DIN. Um, so, you know, we definitely need to work on a solution to remedy that. Um, unfortunately, synthetic preparations generally don't appear to be as effective 
Uh, we've seen that time and time again. So, you know, hopefully with science, maybe they'll get better, but, you know, also maybe finding another uh, a, a way of identifying that would work with cannabis um, and kind of fit into kind of a DIN for maybe not actually being one. Um, and then kind of the typical, you know, propaganda. So uh, it's a gateway drug. Um, evidence doesn't really show that. And for studies that do show that, there's a lot of confounding variables. So, you know, often people say, well, People who use a lot of cannabis are depressed. Well, it's okay. Are they using? Are, are, um, are they depressed because they're using cannabis, or are they using cannabis because they're depressed and they don't have access to proper healthcare? And this is the only thing that you know helps them get through. Um, so there's a lot of studies that have very skewed kind of data and, and interpretations from that. And I think that's something we just be really uh, aware of when we're looking at that. Um, and then you know it'll get you addicted. Um, and absolutely, it has an addictive potential, like anything can be misused, um, you know, cell phones, for example. Um, but that kind of boils down also to education um, of the public, and, and we don't have adequate education, really, um, you know, especially if you're not a conscious consumer of information, which a lot of people don't have those skills. You can, if you Google, like, cannabis facts, um, you know, you're going to get two polar sides, um, and if you don't have the skills to be able to, like, critically evaluate those, you know, you're kind of, you're pretty lost. Um, and so this kind of all leads to all this misinformation and confusion about it. Um, and uh, it's also interesting, too, like, we're so, especially if I'm in the medical community, so um, rigid in our ways, and it, you know, has to go through so many RCTs, and there has to be, you know, um, A, B, and C. Um, but, you know, a lot of the drugs we use today uh, wouldn't actually currently pass clinical trials, like acetaminophen, for example. If that went through a clinical trial today, it probably wouldn't be on the market. Um, and lots of drugs are used off-label, too. Um, so, you know, gabapentin, for example, is often used for, you know, a variety of conditions that aren't on its, like, product monograph. Um, and so, you know, this is, you know, another thing with everything has to be, you know, categorized and typed and regulated and tested and, uh, it, it seems to really be that way for plant-based medicines, but pharmaceuticals that we use all the time are used in ways like that, and nobody says anything. Um, so it should be the same, you know, rigor. Like, regardless of which way you want, uh, you know, it should kind of be the same. Um, so, yeah, like, we do obviously need more evidence still, and, um, you know, there are risks, as with any medication. Um, but it really does have the potential to help a lot of people, especially people with complex uh, treatment resistant cases um, and you know we really need to you know come at it with a really evidence-based approach to kind of break down a lot of this misinformation um, that's kind of been circulating out there and so kind of for support of this that I really just wanted to bring up is that cannabis really has a superior safety profile to a lot of drugs almost all drugs really um, so its therapeutic index is a thousand uh, to one, so it's extremely high. So, um, you know, we see LSD and psilocybin up there as well, but, um, you know, it's higher than, you know, ketamine, codeine, MDMA, cocaine, alcohol, um, nutmeg, uh, heroin, um, so lots of, you know, opioid type um, bases. So when we're, again, when we're coming at it from a harm reduction um, approach, it really is an ideal medication. And then the lethal dose um, is 
the estimated that you have to smoke about 15,000 pounds in 15 minutes to overdose and die. So as of right now, that's not possible. Maybe we'll see with technology in the future. Um, so again, it's also it's also very safe, and part of that is is that there's no cannabinoid receptors in your brainstem, so it doesn't depress breathing and heart rate, and that's why it has such a, a, a superior profile. Um, for people um, with unstable heart conditions, sometimes it definitely can be a bit of a risk because it can cause some tachycardia. Um, so that is kind of one of the main contraindications for it. Um, but again, with you know proper you know patient profiling and gathering of history and, and physician education. Um, these uh, risks can be largely avoided. And then, you know, more evidence is that it really is this multimodal treatment. Um, so that's what's so great about it. Uh, right now we have a huge issue with polypharmacy. Um, so people who have, you know, chronic or complex cases are often put on a bunch of different drugs and each drug does one thing and by the end of it, trying to fix all of the issues, um, they're on 10 different drugs. So the thing with cannabis is that it's so great is that it has you know, so many different effects. Um, and it has a bunch of different cannabinoids. And you know, THC and CBD are the main ones that we're you know, discovering more and more also that have kind of other properties and, and, and uses. Um, and so when you're using kind of like a whole plant preparation, so you know, like the actual flour, the dried flour, uh, whether you're doing that or like extracting oil from it, um, you can get a ton of different benefits. And you know, often, you know, if someone um, has, you know, chronic pain, um, you know, it's, it's the actual pain, but it's also inflammation, and then often uh, issues of sleep, and then also often issues with mental health or nausea, things like that, and cannabis can kind of be one thing that helps all of that. Um, and so we're seeing, you know, we're able to get people off of a lot of drugs, and a lot of drugs that have really horrible unwanted side effects, um, you know, nausea, weight loss, extreme brain fog, uh, fatigue, things like that. Um, so, you know, it really is actually improving a lot of people's quality of life. Um, and, you know, when used correctly with, you know, proper counseling on dosing and what products to use, a lot of, if not all, of the side effects, um, you know, uh, from THC mainly, because that's the one that uh, is impairing, um, can be mitigated, right? So if you're starting at a low dose, you're slowly titrating your way up, uh, your body actually gains um, resistance to any kind of side effects, uh, like cognitive impairment and things like that, uh, quite quickly. Um, so if you're doing it in a controlled way, uh, you can really avoid pretty much all the unwanted side effects. Um, so it's a really um, valuable uh, tool in that sense. Um, and, you know, especially for patients who, you know, have been on, on these drugs forever and they're kind of starting to not work because with a lot of pharmaceuticals, um, they build a tolerance, right, and then you have to keep upping and upping and upping your dose. And then, you know, obviously with a lot of drugs, as you, once you're at a certain point, you can't go more, right? Opioids, for example, right? Um, you have to be very careful with that. Um, whereas we're seeing generally in the clinic is once somebody finds kind of their good dose, um, generally they're pretty consistent and, and they stay at that. Um, you know, once in a while we'll see people who are using very high amounts of THC and sometimes they feel like they're not getting any effect anymore and then we will take a, a bit of what we call like a drug holiday, so they'll take a couple days off or a week off um, and then kind of let the receptors reset and, and all of that. And um, So it's a very desirable uh, treatment. It has a lot of potential. And like again, I want to reiterate, yes, we do need more research on it, um, but 
I kind of feel like if, if there was a pharmaceutical that came out and was showing all of this evidence of this is all the stuff it does, this is how few side effects it has, uh, like this is, you know, how safe it is, this, this is a safety profile, there would be like, uh, people would freak out about it because it'd be such an amazing thing and there'd be so much money going into researching it and funding that and, and progressing it. Um, but again, there's kind of this stigma slash weird mentality towards cannabis because it's seen as, you know, a drug, um, like an illegal drug. Um, and we still haven't kind of broken down those barriers um, and kind of the stigma towards that. And so really, especially, you know, from a healthcare perspective, it, it's time for a change. Um, we really need to reshape how we think illness uh, and disease, uh, reshape allopathic medicine. Um, you know, it's very textbook, right? You have these symptoms and I'm going to give you this drug and, and that's it. And there's not really a focus on, you know, mind, body, soul and spirituality. Um, you know, we're seeing, especially with these complex cases and, and chronic uh, cases, a lot of it is, um, you know, not just like a physical ailment, right? There's so much more going on behind it and we need to um, realize that like healing the mind and the soul on having incredible impacts you know, on the person and really help people, um, you know, with their illness, because it's all connected, right? Like, um, you know, there's so much connection between, you know, your, your mind and your soul and what you're actually, like, feeling in your body. Um, so it's really, you know, it's time to kind of uh, change, you know, this very westernized kind of view, because clearly it's not working, right? Um, you know, we're seeing very high rates of, you know, mental health issues, obviously the addiction epidemic, um, and really there's kind of been, you know, since probably the 70s and 80s, there hasn't been any, like, huge breakthroughs uh, for treatments available for, for, especially for mental health. Um, we're kind of at a standstill. Like, there's been slight variations to drugs or, you know, therapies, but, you know, really we haven't had any kind of big groundbreaking movement, really. And I think it kind of just goes to show that um, our view of things is just really out to date. Um, and it needs to be updated, it needs to change, and clearly it, it, it's not working. Um, so yeah, I think it's time to kind of take a step back from, you know, our traditional kind of way of viewing illness disease and, and be a little bit more open-minded about some other avenues. Because um, especially for things like the opioid epidemic, like we don't have any other choices. Like people are continuing to die and nothing we're doing is working. So um, it's really important that, you know, we kind of are open-minded and, and looking at all options. So yeah, the bottom line is, you know, we need to change how we view treatment. Um, we really need to shift policy and, and have a larger investment uh, to increase research in cannabis because there's a lot of still underserved areas. Um, and then we need to use this research to actually help inform the new policies and, and regulations um, and actually, you know, implicating that, you know, into our lawmakers uh, and making sure that they're actually are making evidence-informed policy. Yeah, that's all. Thanks, Lindsay. Yeah, no problem. We, uh, we're going to ask Ron to come up because he's against his uh, talk matters. Uh, we'll go through his talk and then we'll open up the floor with about two minutes for some questions. Feel free to stand. <laughs>
Too early, no, because it took like 20 years almost. But I think I think it was done in some ways poorly. Um, I think I think it was rushed. Um, like I think it needed to be done a long time before. But I think like people kind of got the idea and like ran with it and made it happen in a really short amount of time without properly kind of establishing um, you know proper policies and looking at the evidence and things like that. Um, and I think that, uh, unfortunately, all of that could have been researched and done, you know, from 2001 when it was legalized for medical use <laughs> until, you know, 2018 when it was legalized. You know, that's a long period of time that you could have done that, um, unfortunately. So, yeah, I, I think um, it definitely could have been done a lot better, um, for sure. Um, politically, I mean, yeah, like, I think the, uh, the liberals, like, that was one of their big things in their party, right, was, was to legalize. Um, so I think that that definitely would play a component as well, especially with the election and everything, and then having to follow through on that um, kind of promise they made. Um, so I think that definitely also had an impact and, and probably kind of impacted um, how, how rushed it was. And um, yeah, I guess that the absence of, a, of, of consulting like professionals, really, and, and, and that's an issue we see all the time with drug policy is that we have, you know, politicians and political leaders making these um, decisions without really being properly informed, you know, by the people who have been researching it and who have the PhDs in it, and, and it's a really important to have an interdisciplinary approach to it, right, because everyone brings different strengths and has different experiences and are experts in different things, um, and so to make policies and propose bills on things that you are not fully educated on um, can obviously be very dangerous and lead to poor policy as well. Other questions? Um, I I'm Michelle Young from Canada, and uh, I was employed as a research consultant with the Canadian Policy Development Center. And one of the things we did was, um, well, we were in talks of compromising my mind. I was just recently approved anyway. And one of the things we did, we were looking at international best practices and federal law as well. And of course, the
Yeah, I mean, you're allowed to grow your own right now as well. Um, I think one of the big issues, really, that it boils down to, especially as in Canada, is that education component, right? Like, I just think that those resources aren't um, necessarily out there um, for people, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, if you can grow it on your own, then that's e easier for you. But, um, and, you know, I think there's, uh, surprisingly, not really surprisingly, but, um, like, I know at least medically, actually, um, patients who grow their own actually have a lot of benefit from it, like, especially people who, you know, are dealing with, like, chronic pain or very complex cases, kind of having that purpose and, and that thing to tend to and, and responsibility, especially if they're on disability, for example, and they're not working. Um, actually, we've also seen, like, very positive effects from that as well. So I, I think, yeah, growing your own is um, absolutely, like, a great modality to, to use and utilize. It's just kind of, you know, getting um, the education out there. And, and I think especially for new users and naive users, you know, growing your own seems like a very, very daunting task. Um, so perhaps maybe down the line a little bit, um, it will seem a little bit more normal. Um, uh, but yeah, and, and again, yeah, it's more cost effective and, and everything, right? So there's a ton of benefits to it. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Written in a way that's 
very understandable to people who don't have a science background. And I think that's like kind of one of the biggest things that I'm really realizing, especially um, you know working with patients, because I, I do basically their education on cannabis, so what it is, how to use it, risks and things like that. And uh, one of the biggest things I'm constantly learning and working on is how to communicate it um, you know, in a way that's, that's not too scientific. And I think as academics and people you know, doing research, it's um, sometimes hard to, to simplify things and realize, okay, this person you know, um, doesn't even really have an understanding of what like, a receptor in a brain is, for example. So I think um, you know, strengthening our, our science communication skills um, for a population that doesn't have science education, really. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's interesting. It's hard because there's a lot of restrictions on, like, advertising and stuff and, and for, like, cannabis, for example. Like, you can't advertise it. And, and, and um, I kind of wonder how that impacts, though, um, getting the information out there. Like, because I think there's just not much. Like, you don't see commercials on it or, or you know, on radio. And, and I don't know if I really what my stance is, if, if I think that's a good or a bad thing, but um, yeah, I do sometimes wonder if like the advertising um, kind of laws kind of impact that. I don't know, what do you yeah. think? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And the West Coast <laughs> is a... <laughs> Actually, just over our time, I know that lunch is being served downstairs. Uh, I know that you can grab the panelists, you know, in the, the kind of casual time. So join me in thanking both Lindsay and Rob. it for this panel discussion. We hope that you'll listen to another, or better yet, join us at the next Beyond Boundaries conference. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.